Well, good evening. Welcome to Tuesday Evening Chapel. Let's all stand as we worship this evening in song. We're so glad to have Dr. David Church with us tonight. He's the Director of Leadership and Ethics Program here. Thank you, Dr. Church, for being with us this evening. Let's worship. We serve a faithful God who is... Who's ever faithful? Hold on, excuse me. Good evening. It's good to be with you this evening and to uh, share in this chapel service and share with God's Word this evening. Um, most of you have not had the, the opportunity to have a course with me yet. Some of you probably won't since you're almost finished. Um, so tonight I would like to share a little bit with you uh, some of my perspective with regard to what I have learned over the last 50 years that I wish I had known when I was sitting in your seat. It's probably been uh, 30 years ago since I sat in a Bible college and uh, took courses. Um, and so I think over that period of time there have been some uh, lessons that I've learned that I think if you will uh, take them to heart, will make a difference in your ministry and how God uses you. Um, I just came from Williamson and uh, the update on the election. I know this is election day. Everybody may be interested. I guess it's uh, coming down to two states that are going to determine the outcome. You can probably figure out what those two states are, right? They're... Uh, I think they're uh, apathy and confusion are those two states. Um, here at NBC, we do have a Center for Ethical Leadership. I'm not sure that any of you have really heard about that. After you leave here, this is available for you. Uh, and uh, these three gentlemen that you see here, you may or may not know. One is our uh, general superintendent, Stan Toller. Um, the second one is H.B. London from uh, Focus on the Family fame, and then Dr. Tom Yakely. Uh, and so we do offer for pastors some continuing education, and once you get away from here, you find out you need some skills that you didn't uh, know before you left, why we have some things there for you, and uh, so just wanted to highlight that this evening. This evening I'd like to talk to you about power for faithfulness or power for performance. Um, before I uh, had a call to preach, I was already working full-time for General Motors. At the age of 17, 
The week I got out of high school, I went to work for General Motors. Worked for them for 36 years. And uh, so it's ingrained in me that performance is important. Um, and so I want to talk about that a little bit today. And I want to talk about the fact that uh, it takes power for action. The verse of scripture that you have been looking at this term is 2 Timothy 7, for God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power and love and self-discipline. Uh, I cannot remember the time when I did not love power. When I was uh, seven years old, I uh, took an engine apart in our garage and repaired it and put it back together by myself and had it uh, working, built a go-kart to go along with it. And, and so ever since I was a small child, I've been uh, intrigued by power. One of the opportunities that I had was to be a part of the design team for the Abrams tank. Ah, what an awesome piece of equipment. 1,500 horsepower, uh, 45 miles an hour, and at 45 miles an hour going over terrain that includes things bigger than this, it can lock in on a target two and a quarter miles away, lock in and, and hit the target. Uh, in Desert Storm, we had a couple of thousand of these, and uh, through the whole war, there were only nine of them put out of commission in the whole war. Uh, I was the quality manager at, those, at that time, and needless to say, we didn't get much business out of the spare parts. Uh, we, we had designed it too, too well. Uh, but I, I, I am intrigued by power, and uh, this passage that you're looking at says that we are not to have the spirit of timidity, uh, but a spirit of power and of love and self-discipline. Um, so I want to talk to you about some issues with regard to power in your role as a minister, okay? And so this evening I'd like to start by uh, turning with you to Luke 19. I don't know if you can see it up there or not. Uh, this passage, I'll try to read through it pretty quickly here. Um, Luke 19, verse 11 through 27. This, you will remember, is right after Jesus comes across Zacchaeus, right? And then this uh, parable. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable. Because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten mina. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your minna has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your minna has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. 
Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your minna. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and you reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow. Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, Take his minnow away from him and give it to the one who has ten minnows. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Wow. It's not often that I hear people preach on this passage. But typically when they do, they're talking about faithfulness. We just sang a couple of wonderful songs about faithfulness. And faithfulness is important. As you're probably aware, there's a passage similar to this in Matthew. And usually when we preach on this subject, we like to use that one. Because in that one, each person gets a different amount. And some people get ten talents and others only get one. And it's so easy to say, yeah, you know, uh, uh, when they were uh, passing out brains, I thought they said trains and I didn't take any. You, you know, we don't like to admit that we have any capabilities. Because if we do, then we have to do something about it. In this passage, we don't get that pass. In this passage, everybody gets the same amount. It's a difficult passage uh, for us to deal with because we don't know quite how to deal with this thing of if God has given talents to me and he expects me to use them and I'm not seeing any results, where do I go with this? Right? We're not sure we like that very well. Uh, well, I see this through my 40, 36 years of business, you know? And I think God expects us to bring results, just like this passage says. It's clear here that when he gives us talent, he expects us to use it. And he expects a return on his investment. Now, we could spend the rest of the night talking about what the measure is of success in the kingdom. We could talk about whether numbers have anything to do with that or not. I'll leave that between you and God. The point is that through my eyes at least, God expects results. Uh, it's necessary for us in the kingdom to be faithful, but it is not sufficient. Faithfulness is not sufficient. Uh, leaders, once we take a leadership role, once we accept the fact that God is going to influence this world through us, 
He expects us to bring outcomes. Not hearing many amens at this point. God expects outcomes. Uh, and when we are not getting results, we need to look at our processes and we need to look at what we're doing. We never change our message. Our message is that God has come and we are special and he has shed his blood that we might have life and have it more abundantly. But in that, we are to have results. And if we aren't obtaining results, there are serious consequences to that in the kingdom. Here's the chart for you, those of you who are Nazarene. This is worship attendance in the Nazarene church in North America for the last decade. This June, we're going to have General Assembly in Indianapolis. Anybody want to volunteer to fill in for the general to talk about this to our two million members about what's going on with our worship attendance? Anybody want to take on that job? I don't think most of us are very proud of this, right? Now, again, we can talk about metrics, we can talk about how we measure growth and we, how we measure health and all of those kind of things, but in Galatians 6, 4, and 5, we are told by God to make a careful exploration of who we are and the work you have been given and sink yourself into that. Don't be impressed with yourself. Don't compare yourself to others. Each of you must take responsibility for doing the creative best you can with your own life. Wow. God expects some results from us. Now, what I wish was when I was sitting in your chair, somebody would have given me some help with some things that I struggled with. So I want to talk to you about some pseudo-Christian views that get in the way of our performing for God. Pseudo-Christian views. What is a pseudo-Christian view? It's something that we hold to be true. It's something we act as if it were true, even if we intellectually don't believe it. Our actions show it to be true. These are myths that are what I call glass walls in our organization, the church, that keep us from growing and being good stewards with what God has given us. So, here they go. We'll have to go pretty quick. There are ten of them. Work is a curse on man and is a result of his disobedience or a result of the fall. Work is a curse on man and a result of his disobedience. Did you know, if you go back to Genesis 1, that God asked Adam and Eve to... Uh, to mind the garden. He asked them to work. He asked them to create. He asked them to put their impression on the garden. They were supposed to be doing things. Work is not a result of the fall. Right? Amen? Right? But we act like work is something that we need to wash our hands of. Right? As soon as I can get a job where I can... Uh, be over a bunch of people and tell them what to do, that's, that's good for me, right? Work is, 
perceived to not be a good thing. The next one is that money is the root of all evil. Right? That's not what the scripture says, is it? It says the love of money is the root of all evil. Oh, but normal Christians, those that sit in the pew, those that you're going to be helping and working with, they are tainted because they work with money every day. They have to work hard. They have to get their hands dirty. And somehow as ministers and pastors and clergy, we, we act like they, they must be tainted because of this association with business and money and how are you really a Christian if you make a lot of money? You know, we have some questions about that. The fourth one is real Christians, those who really talk to God and those who really have a relationship with Him, go into full time ministry. Right? Hmm. Maybe you don't feel that way, but there are a lot of people that do. When when I uh, recognized that I had a call to preach and to teach, I went to Bible college just like you are, and I was an adult. I had a family and kids, and when I got done, all of my professors and the people in my church assumed that I would quit my job at GM and I would take a church full-time. When I didn't do that, ooh, we'll talk later about what happened. But the church can be pretty nasty at times when you don't follow their expectations, right? Ah, the next one is, and if you're super spiritual, you'll become a missionary. You'll go cross-culture. You'll go overseas. You'll do something else, right? I see some of you laughing, but in the back of your mind, the way we treat people, the way we go about church, we act like that's true. Ah real and super Christians hear from God more often than normal Christians. I can't tell you how many pastors I've dealt with that they have this mindset, God is going to talk to me and I'm going to tell the church what we're going to do and you're going to fall in line and do what my vision is or you can hit the highway or you're carnal. You're, if you're not loyal to me, then you must not be a good Christian. Ah, super Christians and real Christians, they cast the vision. I'm so sick of hearing this from leadership folks. Uh, every one of you, every one of the Christians that we know, God is calling and God is anointing to change the work environment, the place where they live. God gives you passion and God gives you experiences and skills and abilities to change the world where you are. Ministry is performed by clergy and mostly happens on Sunday morning. Ooh, we could spend the rest of the night there, couldn't we? Business is secular and is mostly about making money. Therefore, business must somehow be evil. Oh, and the last one here, God has a perfect plan for all Christians to become real or super Christians. And so if they don't become full-time pastors, full-time ministers, or missionaries, somehow they've missed the perfect will of God for their life.
Now, none of these ten would we say openly and say intellectually we accept these. But this is how the people sitting in the, in the pews perceive what we have done. We have this huge gulf between those who are clergy, they have been uh, sent to school, they have been anointed, they've been set aside, they've been made special, and over here we have the laity that they're just supposed to bring their checks and sit down and shut up and do what they're told to do. No, that's not the way it is. That's how they feel about it. I know, I've been there. Uh, some of you have too, you know. How do we change that? Remember, I think true Christianity has a different view. Remember the story about Jesus as he came down the road and he came to this fig tree and it was barren? And what did he do? He cursed it, didn't he? And immediately it withered. I, I contend that every Christian is supposed to be productive. Every Christian is supposed to be ministering. And our job, we'll get to this in a little bit, is to help enable them and train them and hold them accountable to do the ministry that God called them to do. And everybody, everybody is called. Well, here's my assumptions and my view of, of what the Bible says to us about work and ministry. And you may or may not like these, and this is uh, for your exploration because we don't have time to go through all of it tonight. But my assumption, and for you to explore, is that Christians are expected to work. And Christians are expected to have outcomes. They are supposed to do something meaningful to change the environment that they're in. And God is working through us to reconcile this world to him. And if we aren't doing anything, you know, look at James, the whole book of James. I know there's debates about James. But we are expected to be doing something in the kingdom. Thou shalt not steal. Therefore, private property is assumed. I'm coming back to my business model here, right? I'm a businessman. I expect that it's okay for you to own property. It's okay for you to work. Uh, you know, I talk to young kids in college, and it's kind of like, oh, well, this is dirty stuff. You know, it's, it's not supposed to be that way. It, it's, somehow it ought to all belong to all of us. That's not the way that Scripture was. Capitalism, business, requires morality, honesty, and accountability to be successful. The only way I was able to do business was to do it using Christian principles. And I think it's, God has such a sense of humor. And I believe he's going to bring China back to himself through business rather than through the church. You can't have a stable, ongoing, long, sustainable society unless you have rules and laws and morality that helps govern business. I believe that when businesses become Christians, just like individuals, they become better. 
Faith and confidence are as important as money. I, I don't know if you believe this or not. All you have to do is go to one of these countries where they've lost confidence in their government and they're bringing wheelbarrows full of money to, to buy a loaf of bread and it comes right up into your face. Faith and confidence are as important as money. Spiritual capital, I don't know if you've talked about that in any of your courses yet or not, but spiritual capital is required for long-term success in business. Spiritual capital, that is the trust, the, the engagement, the leadership, the relationship, all of those kinds of things. And now we're talking about it on the global scale at, uh, uh, as to whether we can measure that or not creation of wealth was intended by God to be a spiritual exercise. I wish we could stop there for 20 minutes and talk about that. But this is, this is my assumption, and I'm asking you to explore this, because these things will change the way you operate in your church and in your surroundings as a minister. Business is a calling. Just as much as you are called to be a pastor or you're called to be a counselor, you're called to be a Christian teacher, the people sitting in the pews are called by God to be where they are to make a difference. I contend that we ought to be having commissioning or ordination, I don't care what you call it, we ought to be calling our people forward and helping them understand that God wants to use them to make a difference, and it's okay for them to be in business. It's not filthy lucre. It's not bad stuff. They need to know that business is their calling. That's where God has placed them, and that's okay. All of us as leaders are responsible for spiritual capital and its growth. Now, if that is true, and I'm almost out of time, the research indicates that the most effective form of leadership in every place I have studied, education, industry, manufacturing, service, nursing, and yes, even in the church, transformational leadership is what works best. Well, what is transformational leadership? Transformational leadership occurs when one or more persons engage with others in such a way that leaders and followers raise one another to higher levels of motivation and morality. That's what the researchers call it. We'll get to what scripture calls it in a minute. Transactional, which is what I contend most of you wind up being taught by your mentors and by pastors who have been molded by people in MBA programs and sat on their boards is transactional. Oh, well, bless God, if you'll follow the manual, we'll put you on the board. If you'll do what we want you to do, we'll make you a teacher. We'll, we'll use you in the church. We'll make something good out of this. Liaison-faire basically is the avoidance or absence of leadership. Ephesians 4, which is our model for how we should be doing ministry, talks to us about this. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. 
be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Verse 11, it was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers. For what purpose? To prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God to become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Your job as a leader in a Christian ministry is to prepare people, enable people, give them tools and skills and the abilities and hold them accountable for whatever it is God's called them to. To just go off in the corner and say, oh, I think God's talking to me about this. Okay, this is what we're going to do. You know, I don't get it. That's not the productive way of running an organization. It's about helping people reach their God-given potential it's about helping them become the people that God wants them to be. And if you're helping everybody in your congregation become what God wants them to be, your organization can't help but be growing. We may, again, talk about what the measures are, but if you're doing your job to help people become what God wants them to be as a counselor, as a school teacher, as a minister of the gospel, these things will and do happen. My research says in the Church of the Nazarene, there the low curve is what we have seen the last 10 years. The red line is what the population growth looks like. How do you think we're doing? The people who are using transformational kinds of behaviors to help their people become what God wants them to be the green line on top is what's happening in their areas. So I'm here to tell you that not only do we have power for faithfulness, we have power for performance. And if we don't have performance, we need to be on our face before God. We need to be asking him, Lord, give us the spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power and love and self-discipline. David said in Psalms 78, David shepherded them with integrity of heart and with skillful hands he led them. While you're here at NBC, your job is to be figuring out how to do this. How do you do that? To be a good leader, you have to know who you are. You have to know who you are in the integrity of your heart. But you also have to have a set of skills. If you are going to be what God wants you to be. So I'm asking you this evening. What is the focus of your attention? What decisions do you need to make this election day? What actions will you initiate to lead yourself with integrity and skill? The Holy Spirit is the source of power, but your habits, your habits 
determine the extent to which his power can be utilized. Strive for excellence in your schoolwork, in your ministry, in your relationship. God expects no less from you. If you cannot lead yourself, you will not be able to lead others. If you cannot lead yourself, you will not be able to lead others well. If you can't get this self-control and love under control in your own life, how in the world are you going to help anybody else? God is looking for people with integrity of heart and with skillful hands. I trust that you will take this and understand the heart from which it comes. The people that you are endeavoring to help need you to lead by establishing an environment that says all of those myths we talked about are myths. And I wish we had time tonight to talk about all of the glass walls that are in the church that people have banged up, banged their head against, and they finally said, look, I can't really do anything here, you know? And so they go off and they spend more energy and resources on their bowling league than they do on the church. They spend more time playing video games than they do doing the work of the God. Is it because their hearts are bad, or is it because we have done a poor job of leading? We say, oh, 15% of the people do 98% of the work. Well, whose fault is that? That's our fault. That's leadership's fault. God expects performance from us. He expects more from us than just doing all the work ourselves. With integrity of heart and skillful hands, we are to lead the people. Bless you. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for encouraging us as future leaders and future pastors to make a change, to make a difference in a world that is in need. Lord Father, go, go with us, Lord Jesus, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.